The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Are we live now? I think we are. All right. I'm going to assume we're live until Kate tells me otherwise. Uh, We are. It is is Friday, uh, April whatever the heck, time third. Time runs together. It is five o'clock. We don't have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we have Amanda Sloat. And that is pretty cool, actually, because Amanda is one of my favorite Brookings colleagues. Uh, and like one thing about the article that we're going to talk about, like just says it, she says it in passing in this article, which is that she talked to or communicated with 90 friends in 68 countries. And I just want to say I don't have 90 friends let alone know people in 68 countries. So um, that tells you a little something about Amanda, who is the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at Brookings, former State Department official working on Europe-y kind of stuff. She's an expert on Turkey. She's an expert on UK politics. And she's all around seriously fun to talk with. Well, sorry, we're not allowed to say fun because we're doing this in lieu of fun. But if when one used to have fun, uh, Amanda was a great fun person to talk to. So welcome to In Lieu of Fun, Amanda Sloat. I thank you. I am delighted to be here. And I'm sort of feeling in like a Friday night weekendy kind of mood. It's sunny in Washington. I see you've got your beverage. Who needs fun when we can be quarantining inside? That's right. I love that got- you're you have a video background. That is like badass. I know. I, I talked to some NYU kids earlier this week and they taught me how to do some Zoom tricks. So I am I am envisioning myself at the beach on a Friday night. Excellent. As this always, is my dream I'm- Friday night. It's hanging out <laughs> with the cast of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Excellent. Then you're living, well, living your dream right now. I like that my face is like right in between Sarah, like right in cell. Like I'm just replacing Sarah Michelle Geller here. That is pretty cool. <laughs> um, all right. So as always, our message to the uh, our friends in the uh, in the live Zoom audience, you are welcome to join us. Post your question in the Q and A. Uh, and we will bring you on to answer it. Um, uh, to avoid the Zoom bombers, uh, we are not having a chat available. And if you post a question that is even remotely suggestive that you might be not a real human being, you might be a racist or a misogynist, we will dismiss you with a shocking lack of due process. Um, <laughs> and you will not be able to log back into our conversation here. So where do we start? Amanda, tell us about your Politico piece. 
which is kind of, and the research that led to it, it's kind of a survey of cultural responses around the world to uh, 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 coronavirus. How did you end up doing this, like contact everybody you've ever met everywhere in the world and ask them what's going on in their country's project? So as, as with most great projects, I was laying in bed on the Saturday morning uh, when all of this was kicking off and decided to just post a request on Facebook to see if I could get friends from different places to tell me things about what was happening in their countries. And I got a number of responses. Uh, but then I realized that I should start stalking people directly. Uh, so it, it really began as a, a sleepy project on a, a Saturday morning, which then as I started to get more information, uh, morphed into something that could potentially be bigger and more interesting. So then I started thinking about all of the people I knew in all of the different places and stalked them via text, WhatsApp, uh, messenger, email, uh, promised I would protect all of their identities and collected as much information as I could and then have been kicking myself in subsequent days as I thought of other people in other countries that I could have thrown into the loop. So maybe if I do round two. Why, why do people's identities need protection for a project like this? I mean, it's not like it's not people commenting on their government's responses or on highly politically sensitive issues. It's largely, you know, sort of cultural reactions within a country. Well, I think we, we live in a climate where some things that in ordinary climates would be seen as normal things to, to comment on sometimes have heightened sensitivity. Uh, I certainly assured everybody I was simply looking for cultural reactions and, and not policy commentary and, and really just wanted to take advantage of knowing a lot of people in a lot of very different and interesting places. I think this is an amazing project. One of the things that Ben and I, I think like we've spent a lot of time talking about like effects on education of this and the effects on each of us and kind of just sharing some personal anecdotes. But I kind of love the systematic way that you kind of went about this and what could have really just been kind of like a, I don't know, um, like a lack of rigor, frankly. Like, and you just sound like you really sought out people and figured out what to ask them. And I think that it's kind of interesting to live through this moment. And we've talked about this, Ben, today we were talking about, um, I think briefly we were talking on the phone and we were kind of just catching up personally. And we were talking about like what was going on, like whether the different ways that people are characterizing this period in time as being about like whether they're comparing it to 9-11 or whether they're comparing it to World War II. And I kind of think that like the stuff that you're doing and talking to people is like the rare type of moments of like, like anthropology that's happening in real time that's going to end up being part of the historical record, so to speak, of like how people were reacting to this. Uh, so I'm just curious what you think about that. I think that's absolutely right. And you use the word anthropology, which was exactly what came to, to my mind. I mean, I, I find this current moment anthropologically fascinating. And what I think makes this different about 9-11 or World War II is that this is affecting literally 
every single country, almost every single country. I found an article today saying there's apparently 18 countries that don't yet have reported cases. Uh, but short of that, every country. And so 9-11 obviously was very significant for Americans. Some of our friends and allies obviously were paying attention. World War II affected a group of countries. But what I found striking with this is I could talk to friends in Australia, in Greece, in Niger, and all of them were experiencing the exact same thing. And there was a lot of commonalities in how people were responding, but then there was also differences in how people were responding. And so because of the global nature of the experience and also because of the ease of global communication, it was really interesting to, to try and find out what people were hoarding, what people were afraid of, who people were blaming for this, how they were occupying themselves. Uh, and what was interesting was that sometimes I really had to push people because things that were actually quite unique in their own countries are things that didn't even occur to them as being unique because it was it was simply what they was already took them for granted. Right, right. So Cameron has a question about your article. I'm going to bring him on to pose it. Uh, Cameron, uh, turn on your webcam if you want us to be able to see your face, if you want to remain a brooding omnipresence, just unmute yourself and feel free to proceed as a brooding omnipresence. All right, I, I don't think there's an option to turn on the uh, camera, but anyway, my question is, um, so your article mentioned that ISIS has advised terrorists not to travel to Europe to commit terrorist attacks. And I kind of found that hilarious. Uh, can, you, can you talk about that? So that was was something uh, that that a friend had sent me a, a link to. So I unfortunately do not speak Arabic and so was not able to read the original uh, source material on on that one. But ISIS appears to have a monthly newsletter that they put out to their members. And again, speaking to the commonality of this, ISIS actually included elements within that where they were talking about proper health and sanitation techniques and they were actually invoking Quranic verses to talk about washing hands, about not traveling to affected areas. Uh, and then as an example of the, the realism with which even operations like ISIS were approaching this, there were guidelines to them about not traveling to Europe during this time to commit attacks, given the spread of the pandemic there. So there obviously was a safety issue for its members, but then there was also drawing on, on some of these Quranic verses about not traveling to affected areas. Um, the Taliban was another example that an Afghan friend had sent me links to, uh, that the Taliban was also tweeting about this, talking about their willingness to work with the World Health Organization, other aid organizations to help them uh, help people in affected areas. And then they also were concerned about the safety of their own members, given that there's a number of Taliban uh, members in Afghan prisons and warning health organizations that they needed to be looking out for the safety of these Taliban members who were imprisoned during this pandemic. That's actually a kind of remarkable, I, I was going to make a joke about the uh, ISIS statement that it must be the first time uh, European governments entirely agree with an ISIS statement about Europe. Um, but uh, the Taliban statement actually strikes me as extraordinary in the sense that at least the um, the uh, the uh, the Pakistani Taliban uh, used to have, or until quite recently, 
had a murderous relationship with foreign public health workers in the context of polio uh, efforts. And, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, have really resisted uh, the presence of foreign healthcare workers for purposes of, uh, of polio eradication. And so it's actually, to me, quite extraordinary that and a, maybe a sign of some desperation that the Taliban's reaction to uh, novel coronavirus is to say publicly to the WHO, hey, we're willing to work with you. Um, and I, I, I wonder if there's precedent for that. I, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I it, it certainly was was striking in in looking at all this information that there really was almost universal concern and and reaction to this. I mean, the outlier on the concern front often tended to be um, some religious leaders and organizations who did not want to encourage their worshipers to stay away from services. Uh, one of the examples I cite in that piece is the conflict that was created in Greece between the Orthodox Church and the government. Uh, where the uh, church was continuing to encourage people to, to come and worship. And you had a fairly extraordinary situation where the government had to come out and point to science, notwithstanding their, their religious faith. Uh, so, so you're right that when you actually have the Taliban and ISIS and these organ other organizations coming out and, and recognizing the uniqueness of the moment and, and also the broader health implications, it's, it's really striking. So one thing your article didn't go into that I'm really interested in is what your broad takeaways from, so the article like details and, and discusses uh, a whole lot of uh, country specific reactions and some themes, uh, differences between countries that use toilet paper and countries that use bidets. Um, and um, but I'm interested in your kind of broad takeaways. What is the what's the big theme that you learned from talking to all these people in all these different countries? Is it that basically we're all the same and we're all dealing with the same problem? Is it is it that you know some some countries are doing this much better than others? What what was your reaction as you? kind of listen to all these people? I mean, I think it was it was both of those things. I mean, one of the things is that people are essentially people. I mean, I when you talk to people everywhere, people are all concerned about the same thing in terms of how they are going to get um, food for their families. Although saying that there was actually differences in terms of, of who was hoarding or not, um, you know, how they were occupying themselves. But it was a, a very human and a very global experience in terms of, of how it was was shared. Um, so some of the commonalities on that were, were quite striking. I think what I found interesting was, was the areas where there was differences. I mean, in some places, you certainly had countries living up to their national stereotypes, uh, which, you know, people may have given me examples for, for that reason with the French not wanting to stop doing cheek kisses, the Argentinians not wanting to stop sharing mate. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway I had at the point when I did this, and this was now two weeks ago that I was drafting this, was that the crisis had not yet come to Africa. And what I heard from friends who were in Africa was what was most striking. And it made Africa the biggest outlier in terms of some of these trends. 
Uh, first, I, culturally and, and just financially, a lot of people in Africa don't tend to use toilet paper. And so the Western obsession with hoarding toilet paper was not something that they were as concerned about. I mean, uh, to be second, perfectly honest, the Western obsession with like hoarded toilet paper was a nonsense obsession anyways, right? That's that's true. That's true. Uh, so that was the other, the other, you know, I guess less serious divide was on the... Um, the toilet paper bidet question because all of my friends who were from countries that use bidets uh, were actually uh, fairly scathing in their commentary about toilet paper and even a, a Bosnian friend of mine who now lives in the U.S. you know was saying it's crazy I, people can just jump in the shower and and wash themselves if they need to I mean this does not need to be an epic crisis if you actually run out of toilet paper it's it's not like running out of food um, so certainly the the toilet unless you're one unless you're a toilet paper eater is that a thing? No. And that's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know, there are all kinds of people. Way to make it awkward, Ben. <laughs> I know. I, there was a story this week about a large truck that uh, apparently ran into a guardrail and caught on fire and something like 17,000 rolls of toilet paper went up into flames and, and America wept. This That's is that uh, this this reminds me of that scene in Crocodile Dundee when he comes to New York for the first time and he is in the Ritz Carlton and he turns on the bidet and he's like, Oh, I figured out what it is. It's a water fountain. And she just like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like go and go and do that. That's nice. <laughs> anyway. Anyone in America now now is signing up to, to get bidets. Um, but in, in Africa, so there was the, the toilet paper, there was also, you know, that people just don't have the means to, to stockpile food, and the, the crisis just really hadn't hit there yet. And so, on one hand, you had people that were quite thankful not to be blamed for an epidemic the way they were during Ebola. You had a culture of people that were quite used to a public health crisis and the need for sanitation as, as part of that. Uh, it was seen very much as a foreign crisis with, with foreigners or people that were traveling to Europe and coming back and, and bringing it. Uh, but at the same time, a, a realization that because of the way uh, the, the country is, is designed that things like social distancing aren't practical for people that live in, in more impoverished areas and in, and in very small villages. Um, you know, that yes, they were trained to wash their hands, but there's water shortages in some places and food shortages in some places. And we still haven't gotten to the point in this crisis where it's really starting to spread in, in, Africa or in, in refugee camps, for example, in, in Syria and elsewhere. And that I think is, is we're gonna, when we're gonna get to a, a, you know, anthropologically interesting, but very, very sad and scary on a human level point in the crisis when this starts to spread in a much more rapid way in very poor, densely populated areas. Can I just say that I think that that's, so as I'm looking at like the New York Times phenomenal statistics that they have been collecting around the coronavirus and looking at, we've left New York now, um, and uh, looking back at the neighborhoods and the socioeconomic breakdown of how this is affecting people, one, because of the jobs that they do. And that like, there are just a lot of, um, there are a lot of people that work in healthcare that um, are forced, that are like having to continue working in healthcare and that are in lower socioeconomic brackets. Um, I mean, there's the, there's the doctors, but then there's also, you know, like the, um, all of like the people who do the like cleaning of like the hospitals and everything else that are having to report. 
you have all of the service industries, obviously not like restaurants excluded, but like all of the service, the gig economies, all of these are putting people at risk. And then, yes, I think that there's just like a really straight up to kind of use a, a Lessig kind of term, like a, a formulation of like an architecture of the architecture of cities, of the architecture of, of, of life. Um, and that Europe is just like full of closely packed cities with narrow streets and small apartments and, uh, and things like that. And that there's just kind of, uh, for example, not to mention, as you kind of point out, like all of the refugee camps and things like that. And so, um, I just, uh, I just really wonder how kind of, um, how that's going to play out. It just seems like it's so destined to build resentment and anger as things kind of progress. And as you said, this is just everywhere. And so is it just going to become like a breaking point for the social contract? I kind of don't want to even almost engage in this conversation because I find it so depressing. But like, I kind of, I mean, I guess that is kind of where my mind is going. I mean, that I think would be the interesting thing to, to try and do a, a follow-up piece on this. I mean, at the point that I did it in, in mid-March, um, you know, China had gone past its peak. A number of these European countries were starting to, to near their peak. You know, we were having more restrictive measures put in place in, in Italy and in Spain and in, in France. And it was only just starting to begin in the US. And like I said, it hadn't really hit yet in Africa. And so, you know, if we fast forward a couple of weeks from now, the US will be closer to the peak of the crisis. Some of these European countries will either be at peak or just past. And I think we'll start to see a number of more cases in, in Africa. Um, and so, you know, I had read somewhere where somebody talks about the phases of this. You know, initially there's this first phase where people don't really think it's very serious. They continue to go out to restaurants, to bars, to yoga studios. Then you have the phase that I think we're generally in in much of the US where we are now starting to be locked down. We're seeing it's a bit more serious, but everybody is entertaining themselves by doing shows like this and yoga on Zoom and, and the like. And then the next phase is when this stuff starts to become less possible and entertaining because you start to know a much higher percentage of people that have actually been directly affected. Um, and that I think is where people in Italy and Spain are. I mean, friends have told me in recent days that it's now at the point where many of their colleagues either have family members or friends who have been affected. People are starting to lose people that, that they know. Um, and that I think is, is the progression that we're gonna end up going through. And so it'll be interesting to then check back in with people around these places and, and see at what phase they're in and, and what they're reacting and, and doing ben, to cope with it at that point. Ben, we kind of talked about this with Jordan yesterday, which was just yeah. kind of the idea of getting people to kind of like take this seriously. And like, you can only, and I, I compared it to like the concept of Bayesian reasoning of like people slowly updating their priors and figuring out like that things are serious and like taking it seriously. But like, generally speaking, if that's how people reason, what you're describing is a descriptive reflection of that, which is basically that like, it's not until people can feel it like feel it socially, feel it personally. Um, and when it's just being reported to them, they're not feeling it socially or personally. And it's like the second and third stages in which that starts to happen and it changes actual decision-making around their own behavior. 
Right. And I, and that was part of what I wanted to do with this piece too, is, uh, you know, I mean, obviously many people in the United States have very real concerns in terms of jobs and, and food and, and poverty and all of that. Um, but, but also to provide some context that, you know, you may be worried about toilet paper and there's a whole lot of people that don't use toilet paper at all. Um, you know, you may be concerned about certain things and there's a whole other set of people in the world who are experiencing the same thing who have a completely different set of concerns that that you do and that's you know and you're right about the socioeconomic differences that we have within the us and i think much of of, of europe as well and then once you start adding the the african piece you actually have a, a very different level of socioeconomic issues and concerns and challenges that people are facing so Amanda, in the two weeks since you uh, did this research, what has happened in Africa in terms of uh, the uh, spread? Has the, I, I mean, I, I haven't, I ha candidly have not focused on the Africa numbers except to observe that they're significantly behind uh, Europe in and us in as is South America in terms of prevalence of the virus. Um, how how much have those numbers exploded in the weeks since you wrote the piece? I thought you were going to ask me that, so I looked up some of the numbers this afternoon to to try and get a sense of of some of this. Uh, there's now apparently over seven thousand cases in Africa, taking in the the continent as a whole. Um, the majority of those seem to be in some of the North African countries, in Egypt, uh, Algeria, uh, there's some in Morocco, Tunisia. Um, in other parts of, of Africa, South Africa is the, the hardest hit. They have over 1,500 cases. Senegal has over 200. Mauritius has 169. Um, so it is, it is now starting to spread in some of these Africa. African countries. When I had done my piece about two weeks ago, um, some of these countries had zero cases. Some of them, they could actually count on one hand the number of people. And most of those cases were, as I said, people that had been to Europe and, and were starting to return. Um, I think a lot of these governments understand the situation. They've been paying attention to what's been happening in the Western world. They also know the experience of Ebola. Uh, this, of course, is quite different from Ebola. Ebola tended to be transmitted if you actually directly touch somebody who had it. You uh, were interacting with, with blood, with bodily fluids, with the body of somebody. Um, this is, is much more easily transmissible in terms of, of just droplets that, that can be in the air. Um, South Africa in particular has cracked down extremely hard. I was in touch with a friend there this week and they're essentially uh, locked down and you have army out in the street. Uh, there you have millions of people who are HIV positive, which is a huge concern. Um, you have poverty, uh, you have people living in very tight communities, which is a concern. Um, and so the army there actually has gotten some mixed reviews. I think on one hand, people are glad that the government has taken this seriously and cracked down. Uh, on the other hand, many people are pointing out that this is the army's first operation since apartheid days. Uh, and some of them seem a little too enthusiastic to, to beat people that are not necessarily complying with this, um, which then that gets into the whole separate issue about potential authoritarian responses from, from governments. Um, but the short answer to your question is, is there are starting to be increasing number of cases in Africa. Um, and from what I've seen anecdotally and the little bit of, of reading I was doing this afternoon, um, governments 
do seem to be pretty quick to respond to try and lock this down because they understand the potential for, for rapid spread in their countries. And when you were doing this research, is there a country that you just reacted to that said, wow, they've really got this. I, I'm, I wish I were living in, I don't know, fill in your country here. Um, or is this basically a, uh, a kind of, uh, it, you know, this just turns the hagiographer's mirror on what, uh, on whatever country you look at? I, one thing that I found quite striking is that a number of American friends who were living overseas told me that they were very thankful to be living in the country that they were in and that they were not wishing that they were in the United States right now. That they actually felt that the host governments, wherever they were, were taking a much more responsible approach to this than what the United States was at the time. Um, South Korea certainly seems to be one of the front runners in terms of its approach to this. Uh, one of the things that I came across this week was that they have now started developing essentially phone booths um, where medical workers are inside and protected and they are able to stick their hand out and do the swab of people that are walking by uh, these, these phone booths and, and coming up to them to be tested. Um, so they have been very innovative, I think, in terms of the, the way that they've responded. Uh, they apparently had people standing in, in costumes, as I mentioned in the article, outside the subway stations, asking people to, um, uh, to, to wash their hands. Uh, Asian countries, generally, people were much quicker to wear masks. Culturally, that was a different situation in Asia. Many people were already wearing masks because of air pollution. So they had the masks. The mask was a, a common practice that they were doing. We've obviously seen a lot of mixed messaging here in the US about masks with the government just coming out in the last day or so recommending that that people wear masks. Um, so, so certainly South Korea uh, has, has seemed to be on the, the leading edge in terms of of, of some of their rapid responses to this. Um, but, but like I said, the thing that was most striking was the number of Americans that were living overseas. And I mean, obviously it depended on, on the country that they were in. Um, but in, in general, I did not find a lot of expats longing to be home at this moment. I obviously, there was concern about proximity to family and checking in on, on loved ones. Uh, but in terms of the government response, they did not feel that the US was handling this better than where they happened to be at the time. Amazing that. Um, all right. Uh, if you want to get in on the conversation, use our Q&A box, uh, 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 which has a couple comments in it. We'll come to them shortly. Uh, but uh, uh, before we do, Kate? Yeah, no, I think that like I all of this is fascinating to me. Um, and you say things. So like as a um, as I've talked about already, I studied, um, I studied cognitive psychology um, and relate that to a lot of the work that I do um, with online, um, online speech and which I kind of see as a giant kind of evolving set of new, new social norms for a global community, which is not actually that global, which is still very um, kind of uh, in the melting pot type of idea versus like patchwork quilt that's still actually a patchwork quilt, especially about how it gets kind of governed by private spaces. And so all of this makes sense. It's also just super fascinating. I had a call today with Facebook 
um, myself and like a number of other kind of content moder moderation specialists. Um, and they were kind of giving an overview of what they're doing now that they've had to not go to human content moderation, the problems that are arising. Um, and there's kind of this amazingness around how horrible people still manage to be in light of like kind of some of these things you think that it would raise us up. Um, but I've actually like, you know, they are, they're dealing with the people who are doing arbitrage and trying to sell fake COVID tests and trying to like put out mass messages and trying to politicize this, um, and censoring world leaders that give misinformation on things. Um, and I'm just kind of, I wonder if like in talking to individuals in different countries, if you have kind of a more hopeful, um, a more hopeful story or whether you kind of took away from it that things were, you know, there's a solid mix. There are always going to be people who try to like manipulate these types of situations. And there's always going to be people who like kind of rise up. I think there was a, a mix. I, you know, my, my concern is that as this crisis continues and people start to get more desperate, there is going to be the potential for people to take more desperate measures, especially to try and get food and, and money for their, their families. Um, I, certainly there was a lot of hopeful stories. You know, it, it started with people coming out on the balconies in Madrid on, on Saturday nights to applaud their healthcare workers. This spread across Europe. Uh, some cities, including New York, are, are now doing that in the United States. Uh, there were stories of, of people you know, bringing food to their neighbors. I, I saw a story this week in Norway that the, the prime minister held a, a press conference for children, recognizing that children have much different questions than what adults do. And so wanting to really engage with, with that population. Um, it was quite heartening to see the way people in different countries are maintaining senses of humor, uh, the number of, of memes and jokes and videos that people are putting out was something that was quite universal, even though the, the content of the jokes tended to be quite nationally specific. Uh, at the same time, there's certainly also a lot of concerns, especially on the government level, about uh, excessive use of, of force. I, you know, I work on, on European policy, and there's been a lot of attention this week paid to what's been happening in Hungary uh, with the government putting in a, a state of emergency that really limits parliament's ability to, to be involved. Uh, in places like Serbia, you're seeing uh, army- yeah, How are you defining use of force? Are you just mean like police force? or National Guard force or like government force? And you mean like physical force or do you mean like threat of force? Sorry, not to like get too specific. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think in, in some of these countries, they they have a, a state of emergency that, that has been put into place. And so I know in South Africa, for example, and in Serbia, uh, there have been military, there have been tanks on the street. And, and I know anecdotally in South Africa, there have been heavy handed use uh, of force by the police to get people to comply with stay at home orders. Uh, I've also seen videos on, on Twitter from India, for example, of police officer beating people with sticks that you know might be out on on the street and so you know there's a difference between you know national guard coming out and and helping people and and people using this as as an opportunity to to, to police uh, even in in the uk for example uh, you almost have the opposite situation where there's some humorous stories on twitter and people are calling up their local police station and saying my neighbor went out for exercise two times today and the rules say that we're only supposed to go out for for exercise once daily um, so, you know, and you've got, I think, even stories in the United States of people calling 911 to report their neighbors who are doing something that doesn't comply with, with stay at home. Um, so, you know, I think there is 
excessive citizen policing in, in some cases. I think there is excessive use of force by police in other cases. Uh, and then, you know, what remains to be seen in some of these countries that put into place states of emergency, how that's going to play out. I mean, the, the comparison that I've been thinking about this week is what happened in the United States after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, and I think we really had a national debate about civil liberties. We had the Patriot Act, uh, you know, we had to start taking shoes off at, at airports. Uh, we had much more um, excessive surveillance that was being done by the government, by intelligence agencies. And it prompted this debate about how much of our civil liberties are we willing to give up in the name of security. And I would think that we're gonna have similar conversations here. You know, you've got governments like Israel, like South Korea, that are being quite active in the use of, of data from people's cell phones. Um, in South Korea, for example, they are tracking where people went, uh, and then they are putting that online. Now, on one hand, it's quite innovative because you can see somebody who ended up testing positive for COVID-19 was at my Safeway down the street on Monday, and oh my God, I was at Safeway on Monday, maybe I have it. Uh, on the other hand, there's questions about whether we really want the government to know that we went to Safeway and, and you know, perhaps the anti-government meeting and, and whatever else it was that we were doing. Oren, this is, sorry, I see that Oren is in the attendees list. I don't know if he wants to talk, but it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I just sent Oren an email that was basically like, I feel like we need to write a paper called Privacy in a Time of Quarantine about all of the different ways that privacy um, in social norms completely changes and how that's going to have ripple effects on the reasonable expectation of privacy and how you walk back when you have not just civil liberties, you like you brought up 9-11, but earlier, as you really pointed out, World War II is between a small number of nations. A number of nations were not involved. 9-11 um, was just the US pretty much that was involved in the Middle East. But like you have, you know, you have um, the this complete global shift and how we're going to walk it back in all of these ways is just gonna be huge. And I think that the implications of this um, of being able to conscribe this are just, um, are, are enormous. Um, uh, anyways, I don't know if Oren is like actively listening, um, and wants to get involved, but that was just something that I raised to him today, um, about doing. And I think that it would be fascinating. I mean, then on top of that, you get into the fact that like, you don't have privacy from your coworkers anymore about your home, right? Like, you know, you don't have private, you, you know, you have to kind of, you know, they, they're now they're going to see your baby screaming or hear your baby screaming. They're going to see your dog. They're going to like see how messy your, what your kitchen looks like. There's no like see your beach view and the fact that you hang out with the cast of Buffy, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I know yeah. it's I this is um, fake news. I don't actually hang out with the cast of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> I do sleep. Right. So we have uh, some we have some uh, questions from the audience, including first a, uh, a second question from Cameron. Cameron, what's on your mind? Whoop, we've, uh, oh. Cameron? Oh, do you hear me? Ah, oh, we got you now. You hear me? Okay, yeah. So I was just wondering uh, what you guys think, uh, how it's gonna play out the coronavirus in po uh, populist governments, both kind of in the short term and the long term. Um, I, I think, Ben, you touched on in one of your uh, recent podcasts how, uh, like, uh, the sort of use of surveillance for public health, how that brings up some concerns. Like, you know, I could see a government maybe like Serbia, they're kind of trying to build up a mini surveillance state, kind of copying Russia, how 
you know, a government like that might take advantage of uh, public health surveillance and um, kind of um, to try to, yeah, to, to get more power that way. And then also I was just wondering um, in the longer term, kind of how the anger uh, over the coronavirus might be channeled, you know, whether it might be bad for right-wing populist governments or uh, whether it might be, might empower them, so. So great question. And we have a related one from uh, John Vasquez. So why don't we take them as a group and uh, uh, give some thoughts on them together. Uh, John, uh, uh, you got to unmute yourself. Um, and, uh, but uh, why don't you add your question to Cameron's? Well, I know, thank you for um, the, uh... The Zoom uh, conversation, by the way, in lieu of fun, this is actually a lot of fun. But uh, my question was, and it's a correlation to what um, Ben said about Cameron's question. You know, when world leaders like Viktor Orban use the coronavirus to effectively become a dictator, you know, the tool, it, it, the virus is a tool for authoritarians to consolidate power. I mean, what's different in a place like Hungary from the US, where, you know, we sort of see the same sort of behavior? in um, parts of our government where, you know, the government might use this as ways to consolidate powers. Do you guys have concerns about power grabs within the US government? All right, uh, thank you, John. There's a lot on the table there between those two questions. Uh, Amanda, get us started, what do you think? I, sure, I, Ben, I'd be particularly interested to hear your thoughts on, on the US side. Um, you know, I think in, in a number of these countries, it's, it's simply gonna depend how this plays out in the long term. Uh, I think in, in a number of places, people are recognizing the seriousness of the pandemic. Uh, certainly all you have to do is, is watch television and social media to see that people have not been particularly good at policing themselves. Uh, here in the United States, we had spring breakers that were all over the beaches in, in Florida in recent weeks. Uh, in the UK, in Germany, and other countries in Europe, you had people that were continuing to go out to, to beer gardens, to, to, to pubs, to walk. Uh, and so I think in terms of some of these social distancing mechanisms, it really has required governments to actually mandate that, that people are staying home uh, in order to achieve the necessary quarantine effect. Where I think it starts to get problematic is when you have governments imposing states of emergency that give them either excessive amounts of power or that takes away the power of parliament or the legislative branch to conduct oversight. Uh, and I think in places like the UK and Germany, for example, you've either had parliaments that have been involved in passing legislation to give the power to the government to do some of these things, or you have continued to have oversight by these parliaments. Uh, I think what's been concerning people in Hungary is that part of the state of emergency that was put in place, uh, ironically, through a vote by parliament that actually ended up usurping a lot of parliament's own power, uh, is that it gave powers to the government that parliament is not necessarily able to, to have a check on. Uh, a piece that I wrote last week for Brookings was looking at the way elections were playing out uh, across Europe, uh, because you've had a number of regional local parliamentary elections in, in various places. And there's questions about how you conduct democracy 
under these terms. Uh, in Poland, for example, you have presidential elections that are slated. The person who's currently president is closely aligned with the party of the governing uh, party, and he is very keen to go forward with elections that show him very much ahead in the polls. Uh, the opposition parties, I think, have much greater concerns about the health conditions of, of doing that. So for me, the, the big question is, is how these powers are put in place, what abilities the other branches of government, particularly the legislature has in terms of conducting oversight, what is the mechanism for undoing these, and then also do you have the capacity for a broader conversation within the population about the, the types of civil liberties that people are prepared to give up in the name of global health and safety, and for how long are people going to be prepared to tolerate some of those restrictions? Yes, Kate, do you have thoughts on, on whether this will empower or disempower uh, uh, populist governments worldwide? And on the 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 uh, and and how concerned are you about U.S. side power grabs based on this? I mean, I'm pretty incredibly afraid. It's really been ironic. There was a thing going around, and like I was just in a Section 230 um, uh, event that the DOJ held before COVID um, that uh, was talking about basically was like under the auspices of kind of like possibly coming at. Um, end to end encryption um, messaging services uh, and making them um, banning them through basically m forcing them to um, disclose um, an amount of information you just couldn't possibly disclose if you're actually running an end to end encryption software. Um, so, um, and I now I think that having the ability to end to end encryption is like all the more important because you have all of these autocratic and populist governments like like a democratic um, governments making power grabs and trying to do this type of thing. Um, I think it could only be more um, important. And I kind of think that there's um, I don't know I just think that there's generally like the thing the thing here is like a like a concern you have in any moment of emergency in which a government is able to like amp up and like put on steroids it's like it's powers because uh, under the under the excuse of emergency and it's always the concern that you can't go back um and that this like that that changes things forever and in september 11th it did kind of change things forever um and uh you know it's unclear whether that'll be the same here um i'm getting a lot of reports that like the biggest threat is how like autocratic governments are using this um that's like most of what I'm hearing in the content moderation world is that they're putting up a lot of political mis and disinformation and politicizing it in ways that are even worse than the way that the U.S. is politicizing it um, and much more like kind of in a much more scary capacity. Um, and that uh, when you have kind of when you have um, regimes that already surveil their citizens through Internet communications, now that the only type of internet, like the only type of speech that people can pretty much engage in outside of their own like private home is like through internet communications. This is just, this is just even more robust. Yeah, so a couple additional thoughts. Um, I think there's really a few distinct axes that we should be thinking about here in terms of which governments are gonna be empowered and disempowered by this. The first and foremost one is effectiveness. So if you think about the Chinese government for a minute, 
in the initial stage of this, they were hugely discredited within their own population because of the efforts to shut up uh, whistleblowers who then became kind of national heroes. One doctor in particular who uh, died of the virus actually after, after uh, trying to warn people and being visited by the authorities as a result. Um, in the subsequent period, their efforts to clamp down and get the virus under control has somewhat rehabilitated them, particularly, I think, internationally, where they are now seen as, you know, people who dealt effectively with the pandemic. Um, and so I think the, the first important thing to think about is governments that deal with this effectively are going to be empowered by it, whether they're authoritarian governments or in the case of South Korea, democratic governments. And I think, you know, Germany, it's a little too early to say, but Germany seems to be doing a better job than its peer countries, including us. And I suspect that will be a, uh, if that remains true, if they're simply doing better rather than a few weeks behind, uh, that will enhance the prestige of the uh, authorities, both the individual politicians, right? The Angela Merkel, who's of course retiring, so uh, that may not matter all that much for her personally, but the Christian Democrats, I think, will probably benefit from that. Uh, conversely, uh, if you think about some of the Italian politicians, the government uh, of, of Conte has been relatively, uh, despite some significant missteps, uh, I think has been generally uh, empowered by this versus the populists. Uh, Salvante, who was a, uh, you know, was sort of skeptical and treated this as a foreign plot, has been sort of somewhat injured by it. It's a little too early to say. So I think that the, the first thing to look at is not whether governments are, are authoritarian or not and whether they're consolidating power, but just the observation that governments that deal with it effectively, that are earnest about it, that are serious about it are gonna benefit and governments, including by the way, ours, that are flailing and uh, the, the, the messaging is not consistent and that the early messaging does not uh, deal with the scope of the problem are gonna be to one degree or another discredited by it. Um, all right, the second point is I agree that within that general framework, there is a lot of opportunity here for governments to seize power. And it is the question, and by the way, that's not just true of bad governments, but good governments actually, like I think you know, most people don't have a deep-seated constitutional problem with the state government of New York or the, you know, state government of Washington state. And they are literally ordering people to stay in their houses, which is an extraordinarily coercive measure by any reasonable means. Um, I would say uh, in defense of it, this is what we have, what governments have coercive powers for. And if you don't have them in this situation, uh, what, what exactly is the coercive power for if not to save lives in a pandemic? So uh, I don't like, but the question of how you roll that back at the end of things 
is a hard one. And uh, I am relatively confident in the case of the United States because we have a kind of long history of, you know, you know, extraordinary measures in situations like pandemics that don't become purse, you know, long term. The uniqueness of the Trump experience, however, is a complicated one. And, you know, Trump uh, does not uh, uh, pay lip service even to the idea of certain democratic norms. And so the idea that he would kind of use this in order to, uh, you know, somehow consolidate power would be a very scary thing for me, except for the glaring absence of competence that uh, tends to ameliorate uh, a lot of the worst aspects of Trump's, you know, disordered personality in, in terms of translating into authoritarianism. And so I, I do think the central challenge for the United States is a little bit different from the central challenge for European countries, which tend to get to set their times of election. We don't get to do that. It's, le it's legally prescribed. We have to have an election on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And, uh, and the, so the challenge for us is how to do that in an organized and democratically serious way in the face of A, the pandemic, and B, the way Trump responds in general and also to the pandemic. And I do think that's a very significant challenge. And it's one that we, you know, a lot of people we're gonna have, I think we're, we're gonna have Nate personally uh, on the pod. Uh, I was gonna say, that's a great way to kind of wrap up and just talk about like, just kind of thank Amanda for coming. And then just kind of also, uh, it kind of you let, let us straight into who's gonna be on the show on Monday, which is Stanford Law School's um, Nate Persley, who is an expert worldwide expert on democracy and elections uh, and free speech, and who has been literally consulting like leaders all over the world and all over the country um, and how to reorganize and plan their elections around um, the COVID crisis, which is a fascinating effect, uh, both a fascinating and terrifying prospect. And I'm glad I literally just told Nate, I was like, please don't get sick. You're like the only person in the whole world that like knows how to do this. Like go like lock yourself in like some cryogenic chamber and just come out to do our show. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and then, and Alex Demos, who is at the Stanford Internet Observatory and who is doing a ton of great research right now on misinformation and disinformation. He was doing it before, but it's especially important now because he was doing this. Um, he is the former um, chief, uh, 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 CF, what is the, what is it? The, he was the, the chief, uh, security officer. For yeah. Facebook. Thank you. The CSO, the chief security officer. I just like, it was like failing me, um, for Facebook for many years. Um, and now does this and, uh, his work was fascinating when it was just about literal viruses and vaccines. And now it is uh, in the wake of a virus, uh, and misinformation, disinformation. And so this is great. And, um, honestly, Amanda, you guys should, you guys should meet, you would, um, you, like the three of you are all doing really similar kind of related, uh, empirical work that is just great. So including writing about it and talking about it on the Lawfare podcast and on in lieu of fun. Yeah. But Kate, before we go, there is a key question here that's been posted for you. Oh, wait, really? Jonas oh. Stefan 
who writes, <laughs> just signed on and was immediately dazzled by Kate's Zoom background. Sorry, I just have to ask, Kate, what is your favorite Buffy episode? I could not ask this silly question. Anyway, the kids are sleeping next door and writing in English with a German smartphone keypad is hell. <laughs> All right, so Kate. Um, uh, so I have to, this is like a weird personal fact. I am obsessed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It is actually one of, I think, one of the best shows. That's just, it's light, it's fun, it's heavy, it's dark, it's like all the things. And I've watched it. It's like 24 hour long episodes every season. There's eight seasons. So if you're looking for something to binge, I highly recommend it. Um, and I have watched it all the way through over eight times. So, <laughs> so what's my your favorite, favorite episode? Super fan. Yeah. I know. I'm like, don't even get me started. I have a whole thing. Thinking, speaking of anthropology, Amanda, like in some other life, the like the anthropology, the cultural anthropology of television, like how MASH made like this entire show about the Vietnam War that was actually about the Korean War and how like, anyways, it's just like it was happening in real, it was just like this way to like criticize the war and not, anyways, it's just all of these things. Um, but my favorite Buffy episode, I think would have to be Hush, um, which is this episode in which a monster monsters come in and steal all of the voices of everyone in the town and the entire town, it's actually kind of actually related to the pandemic. The entire town is like, can't talk and they're running around trying to speak to each other and they can't talk and there's no cell phones so they can't talk on cell phones so they carry whiteboards and like and talk to each other that way um anyways i hadn't even thought about its relation to the pandemic but um anyways uh Which that seems to relate to how ben looks right now he looks like those people that they interview on tv that want their identities protected i know you really do ben you're like you're kind of like you're got like this you're like they've like shining a spot they're backlighting you with a spotlight yeah, it's it's because it's late afternoon and the light is in back of me and it's all been replaced with the order of the baby cannon uh, 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 seal. And, but I am still backlit. And so I'm, I'm, all I need is a voice disguiser. Uh, and yes. so then, then I'll be uh, completely obscure. Um. Uh this is um, this has been so much fun, Amanda. Your work is so important and great right now. I hope we get to stay in touch. You can come back yeah. on the show at some come point. Come back jo and join us again. Yes, please uh, this do. was this was fantastic. Um, I can't I can't imagine a better way to spend a Friday night in quarantine than don't get a sunburn wherever you are. I know, I know. I, I my pina colada is almost ready, along with my fish tacos. So. It's, it's uh, dinner time. You see that? Now I want a pina colada and fish tacos. I'm going to eat some beans. That's what I've been eating for the past few days. <laughs> Excellent. It's rough. It's rough. It is uh, uh, Friday. It is 6 p.m. Uh, and we will be back tomorrow at 5 for... The surprise episode, we'll just, uh, Kate and I will not have a guest. We'll just chat. Maybe we'll pull somebody in from the audience like we did last week. Um, maybe we won't. Uh, but, uh, you know, in lieu of fun, you can still have us. Thanks, Amanda. Bye, Kate, Amanda. I will see, see you tomorrow. Safe. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend.